Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I spoke with Nitin Thomas and we discussed his philosophy towards not locking yourself into one island with specific tools when it comes to security. We dove into the future state of how traditional banks are evolving and how digital banks are changing the landscape. We talked about quantum encryption and his research and thoughts around the future of this. This episode was absolutely mind-blowing. If you're keen to learn more, then please keep on listening. Okay, so Nitin, we got connected actually through mutual PR or industry contact, and uh, I know that um, she's also doing a little bit of work with yourself, and that's how you and I originally got speaking. And then when we did speak, it was really great just to hear your opinion on, I mean, everything from quantum encryption to uh, secure communications. So I'm really keen to sort of dive into your thoughts and your experiences on those topics. But before we do that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So over to you to tell our listeners a little bit about where you sort of come from and what you're sort of doing now. Sure. Sounds good. So um, I started in the cybersecurity industry before it really existed, I suppose. And uh, the way I got into the industry was uh, really when I was at university. So before uh, cybersecurity existed as a term, um, people used to talk about information security and, uh, and cryptography was a big part of that. So I did my uh, undergraduate degree and my uh, PhD at the University of Bristol in the UK. And there was a, a very uh, charismatic lecturer there called uh, Professor Nigel Smart, um, who actually covered our uh, security lectures. And I think it's one of those strange things, moments in that, in life that define your, your journey, really, because it was really his lectures that got me enthusiastic about the whole field of security. And I, I found it really fascinating, some of the things that were happening at that time. And this predates a lot of what was happening in wider uh, internet security. So this was more of our physical uh, devices like car, uh, car security and this kind of thing back then. But uh, I really wanted to uh, dig deeper into this area and uh, really research um, more of the cutting edge. So I stayed on and did my uh, PhD at the University of Bristol, where um, I was looking at new ways of encrypting video data primarily. And the big challenge back then was uh, people were just starting to talk about things like online video and uh, mobile video and things like this. Uh, this was really pre-YouTube days. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really thinking about how do we encrypt all of this video data so that you can protect the rights of the content owners, but still deliver a really good user experience for the end users, uh, even if they're consuming the, the video on very uh, unreliable networks and mobile devices and so on. So I finished my PhD and I, was, uh, I developed some really interesting technology and I was looking for some applications for this. And uh, this is when I got approached by the defense industry here in the UK. And they were trying to solve some of the really uh, challenging problems around transmitting huge volumes of data from places like Afghanistan over a very unreliable network with end-to-end security. So that was really my first entry into the, uh, the commercial world uh, where we were working with the defense industry uh, to develop some of this technology to address the challenges in uh, the Afghan and Iraq wars uh, by uh, looking at how we deliver an end-to-end secure communications capability over very unreliable networks. Mm-hmm. And the rest, as they say, is history. So, uh, you know, we've since then really been developing this technology for much wider use cases. And we've been looking at applications ranging from financial services to uh, day-to-day communications within uh, the uh, enterprise environment to address the challenges of things like working from home and bring your own device and cloud security and a, a wide range of different applications for this technology. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting you say about your lecturer that really inspired you. And I think that's really important here because I, I myself has been inspired by multiple people, even speaking on the podcast, people inspire me, the people that I talk to. So even someone like yourself, like 
you, your, your PhD, you've, you've got a lot of experience behind you. You've also worked in defense. So I think that's really interesting in terms of your perspective on the industry. And you would have seen, you talked about encrypting data before that. So you've probably seen the whole evolution of how encryption has evolved. And I know we're going to be speaking about this towards the end of the, the interview, but what does that journey sort of look like? Yeah, I think the, the way we think about encryption has changed quite a bit over the last few years. So if you turn the clock back, you know, 15 years ago, uh, encryption was really a very specialist capability that was used by very small numbers of users in uh, defense and national security type applications. Of course, there were sophisticated users within the uh, commercial world that used to use uh, specialist tools, but it really wasn't a uh, mass market proposition until uh, relatively recently. I would say the last 10 years or so is really when uh, it started becoming very widely adopted. And there are a couple of reasons why this has happened. So first of all, people are generally much more aware of uh, the availability of these kind of tools to protect their privacy online. So uh, when we first started in the industry, um, a lot of people used to ask us questions like, well, why should I care about protecting my uh, data online? Who would be interested in that? Uh, you know, who cares if my um, mobile data is uh, exposed? Why would anyone uh, care? Whereas uh, now there's definitely a lot more awareness that actually our data has a lot more value. Um, things that we're communicating online can be used um, against us. So the need for better privacy is better understood. And uh, most people tend to adopt solutions for uh, protecting their privacy. So that has meant that things like encryption are much more widely used. And you can see the impact of that in the growing number of secure communications apps in, in the industry. You know, WhatsApp enabled end-to-end -end encryption relatively recently. But you also have a lot of other applications like Signal and Wicker and our own Cirrus app that are really aimed at providing end-to-end -end encrypted uh, communications that are not just used by um, the niche user groups, but actually wider users within uh, the enterprise as well as consumer environments as well. Now, you mentioned that your first sort of taste at going into sort of the commercial side of things was in, in the vents. Is it a fair assumption to say that just from talking to people in the industry, not just within Australia, but in Canada, for example, that the guy I was speaking to, because uh, he had a background in defense as well, and he was sort of saying a lot of the technology originated from defense and has then been deployed out to the private sector. Is that sort of the same in terms of the United Kingdom as well, in, in terms of what you guys do? Or what's your thoughts on that in terms of that approach and that deployment then into the private sector? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of a global trend. So if you look at historically where uh, most of the investment was being made into security technology, so it was definitely in the defense and national security space. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that were spending uh, the biggest budgets on security technology. But over the last few years, you can see that uh, the, the technology companies, you know, the kind of budgets that they spend on security, it, it sort of, uh, it, it's bigger than a small country's budget, right? So mm -hmm. governments often can't match the type of investment that, that some of these big tech giants would make in security. Security. But having said that, the more sophisticated user groups and the requirements are still very much in defense and national security. So that's why we're seeing a lot of the innovation initially starting in the uh, defense and national security space. But actually, the pull through is happening in the uh, commercial sector where uh, the big investments are being made in these technologies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you see, when you and I spoke originally, you, you sort of mentioned not locking people into one island with specific tools. So can we unwrap this a little bit? What do you mean when you say this? Sure. So if we look at the, the way that uh, a lot of organizations are deploying security now, um, particularly in light of recent um, responses to the COVID interruption and having to move to remote working and uh, home working very quickly, companies have had to prioritize business continuity over, over security without a doubt. And that's absolutely the right thing to do because um, we've had to make sure that there is some way of continuing as a business. Most businesses have had to make that trade-off. 
But what that has meant, uh, and this is, of course, a longer term trend, and it's not just uh, because of the COVID response, but what it's meant is that um, companies are picking one or two platforms that they back as a tool for their day-to-day communication. So whether that's uh, you know Zoom or Skype or whatever leading platform they might choose to deploy, that tends to get rolled out across the whole company. But what that then means is you get locked into that ecosystem of that particular product and platform. So what happens if you then want to communicate with another organization or a customer or a, or a partner that's made a different decision on the platform that they want to use? Suddenly, you've got these two islands of security that these two uh, organizations have built that don't communicate with each other. So that's why I like this concept of an island of security. It's something that um, some of our partners in the UK government came up with. And the analogy is that you're effectively securing your own island of, mm-hmm. of security, but it's very rigid and it doesn't allow you to cross over to uh, a different island uh, that, that might be built up by another organization. So a better way to do security is to not have such a rigid approach, but actually move to more of a concept of a bubble of security. So unlike an island, the bubble tends to be a lot more flexible. Right? You can grow a bubble, you can burst a bubble, you can merge two bubbles together. And the idea is that instead of focusing on a particular platform, you're actually focusing on your data and your communications across all platforms. And the control stays much closer to the organization that owns the data rather than the platform that you're using. So this means that you can integrate your security posture across all of the different platforms that you might want to use and have a consistent layer of security, regardless of um, which uh, commercial platform you might choose to deploy. But you also have the flexibility of then interoperating with different organizations that might use different tools to your own. Uh, So that's a much more effective way of deploying uh, security as an end-to-end solution where you're not limiting yourself to the boundaries of the platform that you might have deployed. So that's a really interesting point you raise in terms of the island. I really like that. I think that's a really great way of looking at it. So if you've got, okay, for example, you've got a video conferencing platform, so someone's using Zoom and maybe someone else is using Microsoft Teams, for example, does that then become this point of contention where it's like, okay, well, I want to use Zoom. Okay, well, I want to use Microsoft Teams. Okay, well, I want to use another random third party that no one's ever heard of. Is that sort of where you're seeing the breakdown of, of this issue? Absolutely. So I think that's one issue. You know, how do you agree on a uh, on a common platform? Uh, but equally, uh, the other the, the other issue is most of your security policy will be determined by the platform that you choose to deploy, right? So suddenly, mm-hmm. if you're moving to a different platform, all of that great work you've done around setting up processes and policies and so on goes out of the window because a second platform might not support the policies that you've actually implemented in your organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I interviewed a another lady. She's a VP of, of trust and privacy over in California, and we spoke about a particular video conferencing platform. And the conversation wasn't about complaining or ranting that I've seen a lot of people doing online. It's more about, okay, this is a thing, this is a problem. And this was her response to solving that problem in terms of, yes, the controls and all that side of it, but then more from a decision-making point of view, because as you would have noticed, when COVID sort of came around, for example, everyone sort of just followed the leader and then everyone was just going to the same platform. And my thoughts were, are people actually performing due diligence on these types of video conferencing platforms, for example? I kind of felt that people just sort of was like, okay, well, everyone else is doing it. So I guess that means it's okay. Now that may be the case, but I don't think it was for a lot of people. And then sort of over the weeks, it started to unwrap there. There was a lot of problems with this from a security perspective. Do you sort of see that as well? Absolutely. And I I think, you know, there's already been quite a few uh, news stories around some of the popular platforms that are being used and the the lack of security features in those platforms. Um, And I think we're now in this interesting phase where there is a bit of an arms race among the leading platforms where they're trying to build up their security uh, functionality. And they're all competing with each other to outdo each other in terms of functionality and feature set. Mm-hmm. So clearly, the, the platforms are responding, but we, you know we're still a long way away from uh, achieving consistency across all of those platforms, and it's unlikely to ever happen, really. So I think 
uh, from an organization's perspective, they do need to think about ways in which we, they can achieve consistency across the platforms and not necessarily rely entirely on the platforms themselves to do that. Mm-hmm. And I guess just due to the, the nature of what kind of happened, people have had to just react quickly. And I get that. And I think people have done relatively well from the intel that I've heard across the globe. And then I guess that sort of meant that people didn't have enough time to plan or they weren't sort of expecting that a pandemic would sort of come around. So talk to me about your thoughts on this and where you're sort of seeing areas of improvement. And and if and if so, what do you think people sort of learned from this experience? Yeah, I think this is a good example of where the security industry in general needs to work together a lot more and establish baseline standards of security that all products are going to stick to. So one of the things that we've been doing from the early days was um, really sort of getting involved in various initiatives to develop security standards for uh, particularly for secure communication. And I think that's a really important thing for us as an industry to do, because achieving that baseline of security means that actually as an industry, we can provide a certain level of guarantee and assurance to our uh, customers who know very clearly what level of security they're getting when they buy a particular product. And um, the response to COVID really highlights this area for improvement in the industry, because actually that's exactly the problem, right? Because if you go and buy one tool, uh, you don't really know what level of security you're getting until after you deployed it at which point you realize there are certain weaknesses, um, but actually equally other platforms will have similar issues as well. So if we establish this baseline level of security that all products adhere to, then I think that's where we can start addressing some of these problems. And there's a few different initiatives that are happening at the moment that are looking at this uh, this area of achieving standards. So even before the COVID situation uh, happened, uh, if you look at the um, IoT space, for instance, the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK has been doing a great uh, bit of work around establishing secure by design principles that are aimed at um, manufacturers of equipment for IoT. Uh, And the whole idea was actually, if we can get the whole industry to adopt these uh, principles by default, then we achieve a certain level of security out of the box and customers will know exactly what they're buying from a security perspective. And then it's up to the vendors to differentiate on top of that basic level of security, uh, which of course most uh, vendors will choose to do, but at least you establish the baseline um, across the whole industry. So when you mentioned before that you don't believe people are sort of working together, that's definitely been a general consensus across the board. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think if we if we look at um, security technology in general, it is still very much early days. So if you look at other areas of technology, so let's take um, the, the wireless communications industry, for instance. If you look at the early days of wireless communications, it followed a similar trajectory, actually, because every single uh, country and uh, company took their own approach to building their own security stack, right? So I don't know if you can remember the old days where uh, you could buy a, a mobile phone in one country and it wouldn't work in another country. And that was exactly because of this problem, because there's no interoperability and common standards across the, uh, the industry. Um, now, that's a bit of a distant memory now, because actually the industry has matured and there are common standards that are defined by GSMA and other industry bodies that make sure that all devices that operate across the mobile network can interoperate. So we don't really think about that issue anymore. And it's kind of become a, a bit of a distant memory. And I think the, the security industry will follow a similar trend, but we have to remember that it's very much early days in terms of um, many aspects of, um, of security. So over time, I'm sure we will converge to standards and actually these problems will not exist anymore. Uh, but it is there, there's still a lot of work to do in this space, but I'm encouraged that there are initiatives happening. And you know we work with our industry partners. There are vendors that we compete with, that we work together on to agree on standards. So there is a, a general will in the industry that something needs to be done about this. And that's very encouraging. Do you think that other people get threatened by sharing information? I think that 
I think that's becoming less so nowadays, but I think traditionally speaking, people were like afraid to be like, oh no, Nitin, I'm not going to share my knowledge with you in case you steal my idea and do it for yourself. I think there's been a little bit of that from just uh, my own experience, plus other people saying this as well in Australia and the US as well. But I'm, I'm keen to hear if, that, if you share the same point of view. Yeah, I think there's definitely a little bit of that. And it's understandable because, again, because we're still very much in the early days of the uh, the industry, a lot of companies have invested a huge amount of money into developing that early uh, technology and uh, being able to get a competitive edge on their competitors uh, through uh, through technology differentiation, right? So it's completely understandable that they would be very uh, protective of their IP and uh, the valuable technology that they've built up that they've had to invest into. But again, I think over time, we will see that the differentiation really comes from uh, business models and uh, service models. And as we move to that phase of maturity, that's when we'll start seeing more and more sharing of IP and, and knowledge in the industry. And do you believe once we get to that stage of sharing IP and knowledge in the industry, that we'll be substantially better off versus what's happening now in terms of this disparate group of people doing whatever they want and not really sharing information because they've invested a whole bunch of money into R&D and then they feel threatened because the next guy might take away their IP? But do you think that over time, things will get easier as an industry? Or do you think we're still going to be forever trying to get ahead above the water to, quote unquote, beat the bad guys? Well, I think that's two different problems, right? So beating the bad guys, that's going to be a uh, perpetual problem that we probably will never fully solve. I mean, uh, we've had uh, police forces for you know centuries, right? But we haven't caught all the bad guys in the real world. So in the in the cyber world, it's it's going to be similar. It's not going to be uh, something that we fully solve, but it's going to be an ongoing challenge. But um, you know, in terms of the actual industry evolution, I do believe that things will get better when we start sharing um, more um, more technology and establishing common standards, because it then allows, first of all, from the buyer's perspective to understand exactly what level of security they're getting. But it also allows companies to differentiate on business model and uh, service models and come up with uh, innovative models for uh, uh, the end product that the, the customer is getting rather than the uh, actual technology that's underpinning a lot of that innovation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, let, let's sort of move into talking about and, and deploying secure communications. Can you touch on what you guys SQR systems are doing and sort of problems that you're solving in this space? Sure, yeah. So we built a platform called Cirrus. That's a platform for secure communications for uh, mobile and IoT. And the problem that we realize that a lot of organizations have at the moment is, first of all, when you look at this uh, remote working and home working type scenario, this issue around lack of consistency of security across the platforms is a really big headache when uh, particularly for highly regulated enterprises like financial services and the public sector and energy and so on. So we built the Cirrus platform as a layer of security that integrates into existing applications very easily that allows the organization to define the uh, security policies and the level of security that they want to achieve for all of their communications across all of the platforms that they deploy. So this means that you have a single point of control for all of the platforms, and it's much easier to control the level of risk that you're actually uh, taking as an organization. Um, the, the second area that we are really looking at is around uh, customer engagement for these organizations. So if we look at financial services, for instance, a lot of the younger customers, particularly the digital natives, they're used to much more seamless interactions with their service providers. So the days of you know calling up your bank and being connected to a call center where you're put on hold for half an hour um, listening to horrible elevator music, that's pretty numbered, right? And um, most of the younger generation don't want to put up with that user experience. So they're much more used <laughs> to being able to 
for instance, send a WhatsApp message to their bank or an iMessage or use one of the consumer tools to engage with the bank in a much more seamless way so that the bank or the, uh, the organization they're dealing with works around them rather than the other way around. And if you think about it, you know, the top three consumer messaging apps in the world uh, between them have 4 billion subscribers. So that's a huge number of people that are potential customers to these, uh, these banks and other organizations. So if they can actually deliver a great user experience for these customers, that's a way of differentiating in a very crowded space. But they need to be able to do that in a way that still meets the compliance requirements. So we're building out a lot of great tools and technologies for uh, these large banks to uh, engage with their customers in a much more seamless way using consumer tools while maintaining security and compliance. So when you say consumer tools, I'm guessing you're referring to like WhatsApp and, and WeChat, I think, is the Chinese version of that that they would probably use. Is that correct? Exactly. That's right. Ultimately, mm-hmm. we are pretty agnostic of what tool uh, the end user uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to be the uh, integration layer that enables the uh, the bank to reach out through whatever channel the consumer might want to use. That's really interesting. So there's a couple of points here from my perspective. So number one would be, as you know, from a security awareness point of view, anyone could call you up and claim they're from, in Australia, the Commonwealth banks, like anyone could do that, right? So I think that removes someone trying to socially engineer another individual because of what you guys are developing is number one. And then number two, I totally agree with you. Like, especially during COVID, like most of these big organizations, it's really hard to get through to them because they said, oh, due to COVID, uh, our call center is limited or we're not taking calls on these topics, even though you need to speak to them about a particular topic, which is incredibly frustrating. And then I agree with you, no one wants to wait on the phone. And I think it's just really interesting in terms of how we are, we are moving. I know that companies have got their own, you have to download their app and they've got some type of chat mechanism on there. But what I find frustrating about that is I experienced this recently. I had to wait. It took me probably around two hours to get the information I needed to from the consultant because the preface is, oh, we are also chatting to like, who knows, 50 other people at the same time. So our responses are delayed and I kind of get that. But then it's kind of like I'm sitting on their application, like not even on like WhatsApp or something like that, where I'd normally be communicating with people anyway. Yeah, I'm really keen from a customer experience point of view, because that to me is incredibly frustrating. And then it kind of feels that like you have to sort of walk away from your desk, make sure you're in a private area to call a bank to hopefully you get through to someone and then they have to call you back because the phone's been disconnected. All of those like horror stories that you hear about, you would definitely know. And so would you say that this would become quite universal and quite common in like the near future? And when I say near future, how near are we talking? Absolutely. So there are already several banks that are working on this particular problem. So the user engagement issue is one that most banks nowadays actually recognize is a big area that they need to invest in heavily. Because if you think about you know, the rise of the challenger banks and the, the digital banks, uh, the, the only reason why a lot of people are flocking to them is because they deliver a much better user experience than a lot of the traditional banks, right? So mm-hmm. if the, the bigger banks don't respond to this by delivering frictionless onboarding experiences and frictionless um, engagement on, for day-to-day conversations, um, then this is going to be a big problem, actually, because um, in terms of the core offering, most of the banks offer the same thing. So if you can't differentiate on the customer service, uh, then it becomes a uh, really difficult market. And I just wanted to come back to one of the points that you mentioned earlier around sort of phishing attacks and things as well. And that is another really big area where uh, I do believe the kind of things that we're doing is going to make a big impact because mm-hmm. um, the number of times I get calls from various service providers, whether it's my uh, telco or uh, my bank or whatever, where uh, they call me up and ask me, you know, can you give me the whatever password or whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, these organizations are basically training consumers to fall for phishing attacks, right? So mm-hmm. we have to do something about this way of authenticating users. And 
um, it needs to be a two-way authentication as well. So it's not just about the bank making sure that the customer is who they say they are. It needs to be a two-way thing where the customer is able to know who they are talking to as well. And the only way we can do that is using some of these digital channels that allow you to do two-way authentication and allow you to add layers of verification on top of that, which are not typically possible if you're doing a uh, traditional phone call or a uh, SMS message or something like that. So these new generation of uh, communications platforms have a lot of different tools that enable you to do much more seamless verification of users, as well as a lot of different security tools that you can use for ongoing protection of the conversation. No, you're absolutely right. I always say to people, like, just because someone calls you up claiming they're from wherever doesn't mean that they actually are because they could, I could be anyone claiming I'm from somewhere and people would probably believe it because I've got the spiel down packed. And unfortunately, that, that happens a lot. The other thing that you mentioned is the call center. So when you're talking about frustrating customer experience, I agree we're moving towards more secure communications in terms of integrating this with consumer platforms, which I absolutely love. What do you think sort of will happen to call centers? Yes, they'll be there, but a lot of them will probably just become like obsolete because people don't feel, I guess, the necessity to like call banks up because for me, that would work a lot better. I can do stuff in the background when I'm talking to the bank about a particular issue rather than calling them up. And like I said, having to go away from my desk and making sure that I'm in a quiet spot to talk to someone. What do you sort of think will happen there? Yeah, so... We've already got a glimpse of what's going to happen over the last few weeks, right? Because most of these call centers that have been rigid organizations with rigid infrastructure have had to move to remote working and, you know, much more flexible infrastructures very, very rapidly over the last couple of months. So a lot of organizations have already started moving to that way of doing things in terms of um, having a distributed uh, call center that's using much more flexible tools. The bit that's missing in that whole end-to-end experience is the ability to enable that engagement, that last leg of that engagement, using whatever tools the consumer wants to use, right? So even other organizations that allow you to use chat functionality, a lot of them do rely, like you correctly pointed out earlier, they do rely on you having to download their own app or uh, going mm. onto your website to yeah. do this. But it's clear that actually they're already thinking about chat as a major function of that, that call center engagement. So they're already moving in that direction. So the piece that's missing is enabling that chat using existing channels, which, again, as I say, uh, there are a lot of organizations that are looking at this space already. So I think it's going to be a, a hugely exciting space for the next few years. And I'm sure, you know, 10 years from now, the idea of calling up a call center and waiting on hold, it's going to be a distant memory. Um, we are not going to accept that from the organizations that we pay for a service. Absolutely. And even on those, like I said, downloading those apps, like a lot of them are really buggy as well, or they're really slow. And then if you go out of the app, like it's hard, you got to check back if they've responded. So it's really frustrating. I think that's really, really awesome. One of the things I'd like to get your thoughts on, so digital banks, we know about them and sort of their place in the market. Do you think that traditional banks are afraid of a digital bank? Because the digital bank is moving more towards the evolution of us as a society versus a traditional bank who perhaps have got a lot more sort of chains around them because they've been around for hundreds of years and that, yes, they're evolving and they're trying to do these things. But do you think that they feel a bit intimidated by these digital guys? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously not from the banking industry necessarily, but I can obviously give a, a good view of this from a technology perspective, which is where uh, what we're doing fits in. Um, I think like all big organizations, the legacy infrastructure that's in place in a lot of the traditional banks is becoming a barrier to innovation. And that's inevitable with any organization that has legacy uh, systems in place, right? You're always going to be able to build something from scratch a lot quicker using cutting edge tools, particularly in the software industry. 
uh, than if you had to deal with uh, legacy infrastructure from uh, you know a couple of decades ago and having to patch that up and upgrade it into a user experience that's a lot more modern. So that's where the digital banks have a major advantage because they're able to build the whole infrastructure from the ground up without having to worry about legacy. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. means they can always use the best-in-class tools for every single layer of their technology stack whereas the traditional banks often have to make compromises because they need to think about backward compatibility and all sorts of issues that are uh, typical of the legacy uh, infrastructure. So from a technology perspective, there's no doubt that the digital banks uh, will be more competitive in terms of offering more innovation and better user experiences. Mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting is a lot of the, the bigger traditional banks do recognize this and they are looking at different models of either setting up a separate digital bank that's built from the ground up. There's a couple of banks in the UK that are trying that model or, uh, you know, completely redoing their architecture from the ground up as well for a, a more digital experience. So I think there's definitely a recognition that unless the traditional banks do something about this, they are really going to start losing market share. That leads me to my next point. I had a researcher friend about two years ago. He said to me, KB, a lot of the big banks you see today won't exist. Do you think that that is a very fair assumption? Just And it was just perfect timing for what you just said around that they're going to start losing market share. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think they won't exist in the form that they do today. I, I don't know if it's going to be as dramatic as they won't exist at all. I think they're, <laughs> they're going to wiped out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. You know, once the uh, digital banks start capturing more and more market share, we will definitely see more consolidation. And I think the traditional banks will have to rebrand and restructure without a doubt. But, you know, they are definitely working on these areas. So it's not something that uh, they're not aware of. Uh, most of the, the banks that we deal with are very aware of this situation. And would you say as well, from a digital bank's perspective, it's more millennials and then the generation beneath that then as well are really adapting to this way of banking? Because even if you think like back in the day or the old days, like going into a bank and like doing all of that stuff, like even writing like checks, like I remember having to do that. I mean, I think I got paid in a check like once and these things that a traditional bank offers. So do you think that the uptake is for millennial and generations sort of to come will take to the digital bank just because of how we evolve as a society? Yeah, I think the technology uptake among millennials and younger generation is obviously uh, much bigger than uh, older generations anyway. So that's obviously going to drive some of that trend because Mm -hmm. they will be more attracted to some of the digital offerings a lot quicker. But I think some of the barriers that I've seen personally from uh, banking with both a traditional bank and a digital one is quite often the the offering from these digital banks is a little bit too ahead of certain aspects of society, right? So to give you a very simple example, you know, I applied for a uh, mortgage recently and uh, they wanted to see uh, bank statements in order to approve income. And the digital bank that I use, this took me probably about three days worth of effort, you know, waiting at the call center. And I had to pay, I think it was something like 50 pounds in the end to get a bank statement that was certified in a way that the mortgage lender would uh, actually accept. Compared that to a traditional bank that was used to doing these kind of things for years and years, Mm -hmm. uh, it literally took me half an hour free of charge. And uh, I think that's a good example of where, Mm -hmm. you know, the mortgage lender hasn't obviously moved on to a digital way of working yet. And yet as a consumer, you have to rely on them as well. It's not just the digital bank, right? You're relying on your mortgage lender as well. So I think that's quite a challenge for getting full market share for these digital banks, that they have to be able to provide not just the new services that you use most of the time, but actually what happens when you need to deal with these legacy uh, requirements from uh, other parts of society like mortgage lenders or the government or your employer or whatever. I think that will be a, a bit of a barrier that needs to be overcome before they get full market penetration, really. 
I hear you. I hear you. Uh, so one of the things I'd like to ask you is WeChat in China. Now, I don't personally use WeChat, but I know from reading some articles online that people are actually transacting, doing business through WeChat. Now, I don't use it, so I kind of feel like I'm swimming in uncharted waters when I'm talking about this, but I find that really interesting. And if you could shed any light on what they're sort of doing from that perspective. Yeah, I guess um, WeChat in China is much more than a communications platform, right? So we probably recognize it more as a communications tool in the West uh, than anything else. But, you know, they have a whole host of services from identity services to payment services and so on. And that comes back to this whole uh, platform thinking that a lot of these companies are taking around not just providing the basic communication services, but actually a lot of add-on services as well. For instance, uh, WhatsApp is another good, good example, actually. I don't know if many people are aware, but you know, in countries like India, they have payment services through WhatsApp. But I think these kind of services tend to be very much specific to particular regions. And these platform companies are going to take a different view on what services might be interesting in what region. And the competitive landscape for different services tend to be quite different as well. So uh, in markets where the the payment services are already being um, offered by some of the big um, payment companies like um, Apple Pay and Google Pay and so on. That might not be a very interesting market for these communication platforms to enter to offer payment services, for instance. So I think what we're going to see is a, a sort of fragmented platform approach where depending on the territory that they're operating in, you'll see lots of different add-on services being offered as part of the core communication services. Um, and a lot of the big companies are likely to move in that direction. Now, I know from our previous discussion, we were talking about future trends. So I'd really love for you to open up about your thoughts on this. And it can be outside of like secure comms. It can be just anything in general. I really think that our listeners would get a lot of value about what you're going to say next. No pressure. <laughs> sure. So I suppose the two areas that uh, I've always been passionate about are um, security and uh, graphics, really. So Unfortunately, um, I've had zero creative talent, uh, which has meant that graphics is a bit of a, <laughs> a difficult one for me to talk about, really. But so I might stick with the security uh, topic, which is one that I obviously understand better than uh, most other topics. Um, so if you look at the last few years, there's been a lot of great innovation happening in the security industry. And it's, it's a very broad industry. So um, there are so many different difficult problems that people are trying to solve in this space. So this might range from something like um, authentication of users uh, in a very seamless way so that we can finally get rid of all of those passwords and so on uh, to more interesting business models built around identity services and so on. Um, but one area that I'm very uh, passionate about is obviously the encryption side, which is what uh, the Sirius Platform and SQR specialize in. Um, and there's a couple of areas that I think are really exciting in this space. So, one is around the advent of uh, quantum computing and the, the impact that that's going to have on security. So, so one of the things that quantum computers are really good at is breaking a lot of the encryption that we are using today. Not all of the algorithms, but a lot of the widely used algorithms can be broken very easily by quantum computers. So we're going to have this phase where we have these general computers that people are using to generate all of this sensitive data that can be uh, easily broken by quantum computers. So I think this is a really interesting area of research. How do we develop security algorithms that can be deployed on traditional computers, but can still withstand an attack by a quantum computer? So this is an area that um, SQR and Cirrus is, uh, uh, is actually involved in developing a lot of the next generation algorithms. We fund research uh, with the University of Durham, where we're sponsoring a PhD program 
and we work with our partners, Crypto Labs as well, around identifying the candidate algorithms that we can use today on traditional computers that will still allow you to protect your data to withstand an attack by um, quantum computers in the future. Um, so there's a lot of exciting work happening in this space, and uh, the National Institute of Science and Technology in the U.S. Uh, is highly, uh, heavily involved in standardizing some of these algorithms as well. And I think over the next uh, two or three years, we'll see some real innovation coming out in this space. So that's something that I find really exciting. The other area that uh, I think is going to be really interesting is the area of uh, homomorphic encryption. So you may have, uh, some of you may have heard of this term. Um, basically, in a traditional encryption system, once you encrypt the data, it's very difficult or impossible in most cases to do anything meaningful with the encrypted data until you decrypt that, that data. And that's to do with the characteristics of the algorithm that you use to encrypt and decrypt the data, which means that any change you make to the encrypted data prevents you from decrypting the data correctly. Now, this is a really big challenge in uh, areas like cloud computing, where you might be storing a lot of encrypted uh, content that needs to be uh, searched or audited. Um, there's a whole host of things you might want to do to that data, which means that you're either constantly decrypting that content and exposing it to potential cyber threats, or you have to actually store the data unencrypted in order to enable you to search it uh, and audit it and so on. So homomorphic encryption is a whole new class of encryption algorithms that allow you to do certain operations on the encrypted data without destroying the ability to decrypt that data. So a typical operation might be search, for instance. So if you can search through encrypted data without decrypting it, it means that you can provide true end-to-end -end encryption even on uh, cloud services where you might choose to host uh, the data on a cloud service provider that you don't necessarily trust because actually they don't need to be exposed to any of the decrypted data. So this is a real game changer for cloud computing because it means that actually you're removing the reliance on your infrastructure to provide the security and enabling the security right from the moment that the data is actually produced at the device where it's produced. And then you can keep the data encrypted and protected throughout its lifetime, wherever it goes, uh, whether it's on a uh, public cloud network or over a, uh, an untrusted hotel Wi-Fi, uh, it doesn't really matter. So that's gonna be a, a really big game changer in this field. Whoa. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I'm, uh, I think we may have to do another episode just purely on just like quantum computing. What I'd love to ask you lastly is quantum encryption. So just really keen for you to talk in detail about how this is fitting into our security space. Sure. Yeah. So um, just to clarify, with quantum encryption, there's sort of two different areas of where that's happening at the moment. So one is the actual quantum encryption, which is where you're using the uh, principles of quantum mechanics to deliver encryption capability that is potentially much stronger than traditional encryption. But because these algorithms rely on the actual principles of quantum mechanics, you actually need a quantum computer to be able to do this, right? So without a quantum computer, you can't run these algorithms on a traditional computer. So the, the second class of algorithms are the quantum resistant encryption, which is what I spoke about earlier, which is where you're developing classes of encryption algorithms that can be run on traditional computers. So you're not necessarily relying on any quantum mechanics to be able to do this. It's more about identifying algorithms that quantum computers can't break or can't easily break anyway. So that second area, the application of quantum resistant encryption, that's something that's hugely exciting at the moment. And there's a lot of good work happening right now and a lot of practical applications for this technology because they can be deployed on uh, computers that exist today. And I think this is a really important area of work because if you think about the, the data that we're putting online today, it's very easy to say, well, quantum computers don't exist today, so why do I care about that? But actually, a lot of the data that you're putting online has value not just today, but over the course of your lifetime. 
Um, I think most people would be uncomfortable with the thought that uh, their health records to, uh, that they're putting online today might become public knowledge in 10 years time, right? So, um, or uh, their tax history, for instance. So there's a lot of this kind of um, data that we're putting online that we actually need to be protected, not just today, but um, forever, potentially. And you look at um, government data, it gets even more uh, scary when you think about uh, military secrets and so on, and national security secrets mm -hmm. that have um, a lifetime beyond just the next 10 years. So that's why the area of uh, quantum resistant encryption is really important, because it allows us to build um, technologies to protect the data that we're generating today, uh, even beyond uh, the, the time frame where quantum computers will be developed. So that's uh, that's a really important area of work that we're doing. So even beyond where quantum computers will be developed, that's very, very impressive. Yeah, I'm just blown away. I really, really appreciate the chat and your knowledge and your insight. I've got so much stuff I want to go off and research now after this chat. So Nitin, I really appreciate your time uh, and the value that you provide, not only to myself, but to our listeners as well. If people are keen to ask you a question that perhaps I didn't already ask you, even though I did ask you a lot of questions, how can they go about reaching out to you? Oh, absolutely. I, I would love to carry on the conversation, Ashley. So, um, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. So please feel free to reach out to me if you want to discuss any of these topics. Awesome. Well, listen, again, thank you so much for your time. And I really do appreciate it. Thanks for hosting me. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.